0: Please take your Bibles and open to John chapter 10. Um, For those that were here last week, I was so glad that one of my formerly best friends, Alan Birchfield, got to preach for us. He's not here to defend himself, but I want you to know that as offensive as he was, it was offensive to hear you laughing at all of his jokes. Um, And uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, I love him anyway, but he, he probably will never invite me to preach at his church because it would be retribution served coldly. Um, but I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. If you didn't get to listen to that and you want to hear somebody roast your pastor, then you can go back on Facebook and just relive those moments. Um, and so, uh, But anyway, take your Bible open to John chapter 10 as we continue our series on the I Am statements of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. Now, my subtitle, as I've said each week, is Jesus in his own words. So we want to take the claims of Jesus, hear what he says about himself, and then we have to come to a conclusion about it. Now, as I've said each week, there are two important issues as you come to these I am statements. The first is that when Jesus says, I am, whether it be I am the light of the world or the bread of life, when he makes that statement, I am, he is taking the very name of God to himself as was used in the Exodus at the burning bush with Moses when God revealed himself as, who, should, who shall I say sent me to Pharaoh? You tell them the I am, the one who has always been and will be has sent you, the great I am. And so Jesus is claiming to be the very one who spoke in the Exodus. Now the second item is that we have to come to terms with Jesus' claims. As C.S. Lewis said, nobody makes these kind of claims without us having to deal with them. Jesus is either a lunatic, he's a madman, crazy guy, you shouldn't follow him, or he's a liar, a deceiver, you shouldn't follow him, or he really is who he says he is and you better take note of his claims, okay? So we've looked at the four of these sayings already. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And here in John chapter 11... Um, I might have said John 10, but we're in John 11. Jesus is going to say, I am the resurrection and life, okay? Now, I think this is one of the most crucial claims that Jesus makes um, out of all of these I am statements. This is the one that is the most eye-raising and the one that requires ultimately the most proof. And so, let's look at John chapter 11 together. I want you to see first, as we get the context, the intentions of Jesus, Let's pick up on the intentions of Jesus in verses 1 through 16. So follow along with me in chapter 11. This is about the death of Lazarus. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This is just outside of Jerusalem. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying... Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Now, here's the question. How does Jesus see this situation? What is Jesus' perspective on what's happening? And can we actually learn something about the hearts and motives of Jesus here? I think we can. Three important things. First, Jesus intends here, he says, for his Father and him to be glorified. Jesus' intention is for he and his father to be glorified, that Lazarus' death will ultimately be for the glory of God. That's exactly what verse 4 says. This is for the glory of God. Now that might be hard for you to stomach. This death is for the glory of God. That's what Jesus says. Second, Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It says so twice in verse 3 and verse 5. Jesus loves them. It is clear. The text makes it clear. And third, Jesus expects His disciples to grow in their faith and in their understanding of who He is. Jesus cares more about the glory of God being seen and the spiritual growth of His disciples than the fact that Lazarus has died. That might be, again, hard for you to stomach. Jesus cares more for his name to be glorified, for, for the glory of God to be seen, for his disciples to grow in their faith, than the fact that Lazarus has died. That's verse 15. These three items serve as the context. So, the intentions of Jesus. Second, or next, think about the expectations of Jesus here versus the expectations of everyone else. First, verse 8 tells us that his disciples expected him to stay away from the people who just tried to kill him. Right? Verse 8, Jesus, are you going back? Those people just tried to kill you. Not a good idea to go back to Judea. Okay? But Jesus goes anyway. They don't expect Jesus to go when Jesus goes. They are so surprised that in verse 16, Thomas says, well, heck, let's go with him so we can die too. They're gonna kill Lazarus, is dead. They're gonna kill Jesus. Everybody's about to die. Let's all go, right? It's hard to tell if he's joking or not in verse 16. I mean, I don't know what Thomas means. Does he mean go die with Lazarus or go die with Jesus? I'm not sure, okay? Second, Mary has some expectations. Mary expected Jesus to come to the rescue when Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. He doesn't, Jesus stays a couple more days. He's like, I'm not going. Lazarus is sick, I'm not going. All right. Third, if you look down at verses 36 and 37, we'll read that later on. Even the crowd that gathers to mourn expected that Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' death. So they say Jesus could have, Jesus could, if Jesus would have just come, he could have fixed this whole situation. He could have, but he didn't. In fact, as I said, Jesus intentionally waits for Lazarus to die. And then fourth, let's consider our own expectations here of Jesus. Many times, do we not expect Jesus to love and care more about our physical lives and suffering than for us being able to see the glory of God? Nobody likes to suffer. Nobody likes pain, sickness, and death. And many times we, we, we expect Jesus to rescue us from that instead of us being able to see the glory of God. From Jesus' perspective in verse 4, seeing the glory of God is vastly more important. And if death allows us to see the glory of God, by the way, it'll be worth it. Isn't that what Paul says? That this, that this light and momentary affliction is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us as the children of God? That's what Romans says. Now look at verse 15. Verse 15 tells us exactly what Jesus intends to teach us here. Jesus says basically there that Christ delays in coming to Lazarus in order to reveal himself so that our faith in him would be strengthened. Jesus says, I'm glad I didn't go for your sake so that you would see and believe. So that's Jesus' intentions. Jesus does this Because he loves Lazarus and because he loves us. And just think, many times our love, in the same way, our love will cause us to do things that those we love may not understand. Our love for our children often means we do things to them and for them that they would rather not experience, right? From broccoli to shots at the doctor's office to being disciplined for things that they need to know, right? But our children should know that our intentions are for their good. How much more then, think about this, how much more then should we expect God's love and God's wisdom that in His love and wisdom it will, it will result in experiences in our lives that we would never choose for ourselves, right? I mean, how many of you would choose cancer? How many of you would choose to lose a loved one? How many of you would choose to go through incredible relational turmoil or incredible financial situations? How many of you would choose those things for yourself when Jesus says, I'm choosing this for you because it's ultimately for your good so that you can see the glory of God? Right? Mary and Martha would have never chosen this scenario, would they? I mean, be honest. Would you choose this? None of us would choose this, right? They're hoping that Jesus would have prevented it. Jesus intended it so that all would be able to know him and trust him more fully. So that's the intentions of Jesus. His intentions are not always our intentions. Second, let's look at the I am statement. I am, the resurrection and the life. Look at verses 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Four days. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And and she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Now we're told here, that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, there's rabbinic tradition, rabbinic writings that indicate most Jews believe that the soul of the person um, who departed hovered over the body for three days, seeking re-entry until decomposition had set in. And after that, the soul would have departed from the, from the area. That's what Jews believed. That doesn't mean it's true, it's just what they believed, okay? Jesus intentionally here waits until this supposed time has passed, concerning Lazarus, right? Before coming to Mary and Martha. As far as everyone here is concerned, from the family to the mourners, death, it has won. Death is sure, it is certain, and it has won. The grave has claimed another victim. The point here for us, and for Jesus, and I think for John, is that the greater the time that has lapsed, The greater the miracle and revelation of Jesus, right? If he's only been dead one day, well, maybe he's not really dead. He just needs to be tapped on the shoulder and he'll wake up. But he's been dead four days in the tomb. Decomposition is set in. The greater the time has lapsed, the greater the miracle, okay? Next, notice Martha's faith here. Martha has faith in Jesus and faith in a future resurrection. That's verses 21 through 23. Martha seems to be an incredible woman of faith already, but there's more here for her to believe. Notice what she does believe, though. First, she believes that Jesus could have healed Lazarus, right, if he had only been here. After all, she's seen Jesus heal many others. And Martha believes Jesus has a unique relationship with God such that if Jesus asked anything, God will hear him. So she believes Jesus has a unique relationship with God. And she also believes that there will be a future uh, resurrection on the final day. So when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, she's like, well, yeah. On the final day, everybody's going to rise again. So I have a future resurrection hope. But she's being tested by Jesus here to see if she will believe something far greater about him. Listen, not just what Jesus can do, but who he is. Not just what he can do, but who he is. Now look at what Jesus claims, verses 25 and 26. Right on the heels of Martha's hope in a future resurrection, Jesus says this. This is not what she expected Jesus to say. When when, when she says, you know, I know he'll rise again on the last day, she hopes Jesus will say, yep, that's exactly right. But this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the I am statement. And as I said, in my opinion, this is one of the most incredible claims of all the I am statements. So let's look at it a little more closely. Notice that Jesus here, in this statement, he does not simply claim to give us resurrection and life. That's not the claim. I will give you resurrection and life. Though that would have been astounding on its face, Jesus makes a more astounding claim by saying he is the resurrection and he is the life. The Greek contains the definite article before both resurrection and life. He is the resurrection and he is the life. Now think about that from the context of John's gospel. John has shown Jesus claiming over and over again to be The very I am who was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus has claimed to be the very one who rescued Israel from Pharaoh and Egypt and led them in the exodus. He's the light of the world who led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And if you come to him, you will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. He is the rock who poured out the water in the wilderness and if you drink of him, you will have life and never thirst again. He's the bread of life that was given like manna, and if you eat of him, you will be satisfied forever. He's the door of the sheep and the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name and leads them, who gives his life for his sheep so that they can have life and have it abundantly. So, if you've been tracking in John's gospel, I hope you've been tracking, and you haven't become numb to the story, you're just like, well, this is just another Sunday school lesson. Like, Read the Bible for what it intends, okay? If you, haven't become, if you haven't become numb, and you're a serious reader, then you might be wondering something like this. Well, Jesus, it's one thing to ask people to follow you, and that you will provide them with a purpose, or give them teachings to follow. Or you'll offer to sustain them, and help them, and give them some food, right? Right? You fed the 5,000. It's one thing to ask people to do that. It's kind of outrageous, by the way, Jesus, to claim that all of Israel's history has really been about you, right? And part of you revealing yourself. And by the way, Jesus, it's pretty convenient for you that none of that can be really proven. Like that the burning bush was really you. Like you that's really convenient for you that you can't prove any of that. Now, it's another thing altogether for Jesus to state, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? It's another thing to state altogether that if you believe in me, you will never die. And though you die, you will live. That is something altogether different, right? It is altogether different to claim that He is the resurrection and the life and that His power and that His life can reach into death and overcome it and subdue it. That's the question here. That's the question for the reader. If you've been reading John, Jesus obviously has the power to perform certain miracles. They cannot be denied. The man born blind, the feeding of the 5,000. You can't deny the miracle working power. Okay? But here's the question. Can Jesus really reach into Sheol? Can he really reach into Hades, the realms of the dead? Can he really reach into death, unlock its doors, and pull people out of it? Can Jesus really do that? And that's exactly what Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That claim, hear me, this claim goes to the very heart of the Bible and the very hope of the gospel. The greatest enemy in the Bible is death. That is the greatest enemy. The greatest enemy is death. Death is the alien intruder into this world that God, who is life, has created. From the very beginning, God breathed into us life and made us living souls. God told Adam and Eve, on the day you eat this fruit and you break my law, you will certainly die. Death would be the consequences of sin and rebellion. And by the way, that truth is self-evident. Every one of you in here will lay down one day and you will never get up. Every last one of you. There is no escaping it. Death will have its moment. All will die. But also, in the Old Testament, there is this ongoing hope of resurrection. That God will one day raise from the dead those that belong to Him. There are whispers of it in the Old Testament. There are shadows of it, echoes of it, from Job to Abraham to David. Dimly and darkly they speak of it, but it is their hope. It's Martha's hope here. Their hope is that death will not be the end since God is life and has made us to know Him and love Him forever. But here's the, old, here's the question of the whole Bible How will that happen? Who is going to conquer this enemy? And Jesus stands here in the middle of John looking at this tomb with Lazarus. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who will defeat death by death. I will conquer it myself by going into it, wrestling it, and killing it. I will do that. Jesus is the resurrection and life, and death cannot survive his presence. This is what Jesus is asking Martha and his disciples and us to believe. Martha may have some doubts. We all do. But she's convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But she might not be very sure about this claim. I mean, this is a big one, right? It's one thing to ask us to believe it. It's another thing altogether to demonstrate it. Amen? It's one thing to ask us to believe it. It's another thing to do it, which is where the text turns next. Look at the compassion and power of Jesus at the end of this text. Verses 28 through 44. Watch. Watch what happens. It says, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's exactly what Mary had said. That's exactly what Martha had said earlier. Exact same sentence. And when Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And when, they had, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now the scene, the scene here now moves from Martha and, uh, to Mary, who's still surrounded by mourners, as was the Jewish custom. And they go out to Jesus and everybody follows them because they think they're going to to grieve at the tomb. And here Mary comes weeping to Jesus and and Jesus is deeply moved and troubled in verse 35. And it's here you get to see the compassion of Jesus. It overflows as John simply states, Jesus wept. By the way, that's the shortest verse in your Bible. And then all of those with him reiterate the truth that Jesus loved... Lazarus much. They don't doubt Jesus' compassion, but they do question why Jesus didn't intervene before Lazarus died. Listen, they think Jesus' power is limited to the living. He can make the living who are sick well, but he can't make the dead who are dead alive. Death is too strong an enemy. Yes, Jesus is powerful, but he's not as powerful as death. Now, John tells us in verse 38, Jesus is deeply moved again as he comes to the tomb. Take the stone away. Martha protests, It's been too long. The old King James says, surely he stinketh. It's probably true. it has been dead for four days. And then what does Jesus say? Believe and you'll see the glory of God. The issue is he's really dead, right? Death is really one. Opening the tomb won't be good for anybody. And then Jesus prays so that everyone will know he's been sent for this very purpose. He calls out to Lazarus. Picture yourself there. He calls out to Lazarus. The one who is the resurrection and life calls to the dead, and death gives them up. Do you understand what I just said there? That is hard to imagine. The one who is resurrection and life calls to the dead, and the dead come out. The voice of Jesus, calling his sheep by name, gives resurrection and life. Look look at what this means. First, I want you to note that Jesus is deeply moved, not simply because he loves Lazarus. Does Jesus love Lazarus? Resounding yes. Jesus is not deeply moved simply because he loves Lazarus, but also because he hates death. He hates it. It is the enemy. Life despises death. Jesus is life. Death is the intruder and the thief, and Jesus hates it. Second, death cannot survive in the presence of the one who is the resurrection and life. You have to note that every time in the Gospels that Jesus encounters death, death must yield to him. It must yield. Whether that's when he meets Jairus's little daughter who has died, and Jesus goes in and takes her by the hand and says, "Little girl, I say to you, arise," and she gets up, or whether it's he, he encounters the funeral procession in Luke seven where the widow's only son has died, and Jesus, moved with compassion, stops the procession, reaches up on the pier or the pier or whatever, and grabs this guy and says, "Young man." I say to you, arise. And here with Lazarus, it is Jesus who speaks life to the death. Lazarus, come out. Death does not have final say in the presence of Jesus. Now guys, what you think about that? Death has no power in the presence of Jesus. This is the hope of the gospel. This is why Jesus lays down his life to conquer death for us, so that we can have eternal life now and forever and a future resurrection where we will be given a new body that will never die. That's why Paul triumphantly says in 1 Corinthians 15 death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? No believer needs to fear a grave that Jesus has walked out of. You need not fear it. The whole point of this episode, as I conclude, the whole point of this episode is for us to see Jesus for who He really is by faith. So that we may believe in Him. So that He can save us from sin and death. So that we can have our relationship restored to God for eternity. Jesus has the authority and power to forgive us, raise us to life. Not just physically, but spiritually from death. And that is our greatest need. We need spiritual resurrection that lasts into eternity. And that life comes through faith in His name. And the whole promise of the Bible ends in Revelation 21 where it says, Behold, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That's resurrection hope right there. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. It will be done. It says early in Revelation that God took death and threw it into hell. It is over, and there will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for those things have passed away. And that is the hope of the gospel. And my question is, have you come to Jesus for resurrection and life? Would you pray with me? Father, bless the preaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus as resurrection and life. We ask this in his name and for his glory.